Chapter 66 On the seventeenth day of Thomas' reign, Brandon's son, Dennis, brought the first lot of twenty-one napkins to the needle. He brought them from a storeroom that neither Peter nor Thomas nor Ben Stodd nor Penya himself knew about, although all would become aware of it before the grim business of Peter's imprisonment was done. Dennis knew because he was a butler's son from a long line of butlers, but familiarity breeds contempt, so they say, and he thought nothing much about the storeroom from which he fetched the napkins. We'll speak more of this later. Let me tell you now only that all would have been struck with wonder at the sight of it, and Peter in particular, for had he known of this room which Dennis took completely for granted, he might have attempted his, his escape as much as three years sooner, and much for better or for worse might have been changed. Chapter 67 The royal crest was removed from each napkin by a woman Pena had hired for the quickness of her needle and the tightness of her lips. Each day, she sat in a rocker just outside the doorway of the storeroom, picking out stitches that were very old indeed. When she did this, her lips were tight, for more reasons than one. To one make such lovely needlework seemed to her almost a desecration, but her family was poor, and the money from Pena was like a gift from heaven. So there she sat, and would sit for years to come, rocking and plying her needle like one of those weird sisters of whom you may have heard in another tale. She spoke to no one, not even her husband, about her days of unmaking. The napkins had a strange, faint smell, not of mildew, but of must, as if from long disuse. They were otherwise without fault, each of them twenty rondels by twenty, big enough to cover the lap of even the most dedicated eater. There was a bit of comedy attached to the first napkin delivery. Dennis hung about Beeson, expecting a tip. Beeson let him hang about for a while because he expected that sooner or later the dim-witted lad would remember to tip him. They both came to the conclusion that neither was going to be tipped at the same time. Dennis started for the door, and Beeson helped him along with a kick in the seat of his pants. This caused a pair of lesser warders to laugh heartily. Then Beeson pretended to wipe his bottom with a handful of napkins for the lesser warden's further amusement, but he was careful only to pretend. After all, Penny was in this business somewhere, and it was best to tread lightly. Perhaps Penny would not be around a great deal longer, however. In the mead houses and wine shops, Beeson had begun to hear whispers that Flagg's shadow had fallen on the judge general, and that if Penny was not very, very careful, he might soon be watching the proceedings at court from an even more commanding angle than the bench upon which he now sat. He might be looking in the window, these wags said behind their hands, from one of the spikes atop the castle walls. Chapter 68 On the 18th day of Thomas' reign, the first napkin was on Peter's breakfast tray when it was delivered in the morning. It was so large and the breakfast so small that it actually covered the meal completely. Peter smiled for the first time since he had come to this cold, high place. His cheeks and chin were shadowed with the beginnings of a beard which would grow full and long in these two drafty rooms, and he looked quite a desperate character, until he smiled. The smile lit his face with magical power, made it strong and radiant, a beacon to which one could imagine soldiers rallying in battle. Ben, he muttered, picking the napkin up by one corner. His hands shook a bit. I knew you'd do it. Thank you, my friend, thank you. The first thing Peter did with his first napkin 
was to wipe away the tears that now freely ran down his cheeks. The peephole and the stout wooden door popped open. Two lesser wardens appeared like the two heads of Flag's parrot, packed into a tiny space, cheek to scruffy cheek. Hope that baby won't forget to wipe his chinny chin, one cried in a crackle, warbling voice. Hope that baby won't forget to wipe the eggy off his shirty, the other cried, and then both screamed with derisive laughter. But Peter did not look at them, and his smile did not fade. The warders saw that smile and made no more jokes. There was something about it in which forbade joking. Eventually, they closed the peephole and left Peter alone. The napkin came with his lunch that day. With his dinner that night, the napkins came to Peter in his lonely cell in the sky for the next five years. Chapter 69 The dollhouse arrived on the thirteenth day of Thomas the Lightbringer's reign. By then, modals, those first hairbringers of spring, which we call bluettes, were coming up in pretty little roadside bunches. Also by then, Thomas the Lightbringer had signed into law the farmer's tax increase, which quickly became known as Tom's Black Tax. The new joke told in the meat houses and wine shops was that the king would soon be changing his royal name to Thomas the Taxbringer. The increase was not 8%, which might have been fair, or 18%, which might have been bearable, but 80%. Thomas had had some doubts about it at first, but it hadn't taken Flag long to convince him. We must tax them more on what they admit they own so we can collect at least some of what's due us on all they hide from the tax collector, Flag said. Thomas, his head fuddled by the wine that now flowed constantly in the court's chambers of the castle, had nodded with what he hoped was a wise expression on his face. For his part, Peter had begun to fear that the dollhouse had been lost after all these years, and that was almost the truth. Ben Stodd had commissioned Dennis to find it. After several days of fruitless searching, Dennis had confided it in his good old Da, the only person he dared trust with such a serious matter. It had taken Brandon another five days to find the dollhouse, in one of the minor storage rooms on the ninth floor, West Turret, where its cheerful pretend lawns and long rambling wings were hidden under an ancient and slightly moth-eaten dustcloth that was gray with the years. All of the original furnishings were still in the house. It had taken Brandon and Dennis and a soldier hand-picked by Pena three more days to make sure all the sharp things were removed. Then at last the dollhouse was delivered by two squire boys who toiled up the 300 stairs with the heavy, awkward things spiked on a board between them. Beeson followed closely behind, cursing and threatening terrible reprisals if they should drop it. Sweat rolled down the boys' faces in rivers, but they made no reply. When the door of Peter's prison opened and the dollhouse was brought in, Peter gasped with surprise, not just because the dollhouse was finally here, but because one of the two boys carrying it was Ben Stodd. Give not a sign, Ben's eyes flashed. Don't look at me too long, Peter's eyes flashed back. After the advice that he had given, Pena would have been stunned to see Ben here. He had forgotten that the logic of all the wise men in the world cannot often stand against the logic of a boy's heart, if the boy's heart is large and kind and loyal. Ben Stodd, all three. It had been the easiest thing in the world to exchange places with one of the squires meant to carry the dollhouse to the top of the needle. For a gilder, all the money Ben had in the world, as a matter of fact, Dennis had arranged it. 
Don't tell your father at this, Ben cautioned Dennis. Why not? Dennis had asked. I tell my old dad almost everything, don't you? I did, Ben said, remembering how his father had forbidden him to mention Peter's name anymore in the house. But when boys grow up, I think that sometimes changes. However that may be, you mustn't tell him this, Dennis. He might tell Pena, and then I'd be in a hot pot on a high fire. All right, Dennis promised. It was a promise he kept. Dennis had been cruelly hurt when his master, whom he had loved, had been first accused and then convicted of the murder. In the last few days, Ben had gone a long way toward filling the empty place in Dennis' heart. That's good, Ben said, and punched Dennis playfully on the shoulder. I only want to see him a minute and refresh my heart. He was your best friend, wasn't he? Still is. Dennis had stared at him, amazed. How can you claim a man who murdered his own father as your best friend? Because I don't believe he did it, Ben said. Do you? To Ben's utter amazement, Dennis burst into wretched tears. All my heart says the same, and yet... Listen to it then, Ben said. He gave Dennis a large, rough hug. And dry off your mug before someone sees you bawling like a kid. <laughs> Put it in the other room, Peter said now, distressed by the slight tremble in his voice. Beeson didn't notice. He was too busy cursing the two boys for their slowness, their stupidity, their very existence. They carried the dollhouse into the bedroom and set it down. The other boy, who had a very stupid face, dropped his end too quickly and too hard. There was the tiny sound of something breaking inside. Peter winced. Beeson cuffed the boy, but he smiled as he did it. It was the first good thing that had happened to him since those two lads had appeared with the accursed thing. The stupid boy stood up, wiping the side of his face, which was already starting to swell, and staring at Peter with frank wonder and fear, his mouth wide open, Ben remained on his knees a moment longer. There was a small rattan mat in front of the house's front door, which we would call a welcome mat, I suppose, and for just a moment, Ben allowed his thumb to move over the top of this, and his eyes met Peter's. Now get out! Beeson cried. Get out, both of you! Go home, you and curse your mothers forever bringing such slow, clumsy fools as yourself into the world. The boys passed Peter, the loudish ones shrinking away as, the, as if the prince might have a disease he could catch. Ben's eyes met Peter's once more. Peter trembled at the love he saw in his old friend's gaze. Then they were gone. Well, you have it now, my good little princeling, Beeson said. What shall we bring you next? Little roughly dresses, silky underpants? Peter turned slowly and looked at Beeson. After a moment, Beeson dropped his eyes. There was something frightening in Peter's gaze, and Beeson was forced to remember again that, sissy or not, Peter had beaten him so badly that his ribs had ached for two days, and he had had dizzy spells for a week. Well, that's your business, he muttered. And now that you have it, I could find a table to put it on and a chair to sit in while you, he grimaced, while you play with it. And how much would this cost? A mere three guilders, I should think. I have no money. Ah, but you know powerful people. No more, Peter said. I traded a favor for a favor. That's all. Sit on the floor then and get your child plans on you on your arse, and be damned to you, Beeson said, and he strode from the room. The little flood of guilders he had enjoyed since Peter came to the needle had apparently dried up, put Beeson in a foul mood for days.
Peter waited until he had heard all the locks and bolts grow rattling home before lifting the rattan mat Ben had rubbed with his thumb. Beneath he found a square of paper, no larger than a stamp on a letter. Both sides of it had writing on it, and there was no space between the words. The letters were tiny indeed. Peter had to squint to read them, guessed that Ben must have made them with the aid of a magnifying glass. Peter, destroy this after you read it. I don't believe you did it. Others feel the same as I, I am sure. I am still your friend. I love you as I always did. Dennis does not believe it either. If I can ever help get to me through Pena, let your heart be steadfast. As he read it, Peter's eyes filled with warm tears of gratitude. I think that real friendship always makes us feel such sweet gratitude because the world almost always seems like a very hard desert and the flowers that grow there seem to grow against such high odds. A good old Ben, he whispered over and over again. In the fullness of his heart, he couldn't think to say anything else. Good old Ben. Good old Ben. For the first time, he began to think that his plan, wild and dangerous as it was, might have a chance to succeed. Next, he thought of the note. Ben had put his life on the line to write it. Ben was noble, barely, but not royal, thus not immune to the headsman's axe. If Beeson or one of his jackals found the note, they would guess that one or the other of the boys who had brought the dollhouse must have written it. The loudish one looked as if he couldn't read even the large letters in a child's book, let alone write such tiny ones as these. So they would look to the other boy, and from there to the chopping block might be a short trip for good old Ben. He could think of only one sure way to get rid of it. He didn't hesitate. He crumpled a little note up between his thumb and his forefinger on his right hand, and then he ate it. Chapter 70 by now I'm sure you have guessed Peter's plan of escape, because you know a good deal more than Pena did when he read Peter's request. But in any case, the time has come to tell you straight out. He planned to use linen threads to make a rope. The threads would come, of course, from the edges of the napkin. He would descend his rope to the ground and so escape. Some of you may be laughing very hard at this idea. Threads from napkins to escape a tower 300 feet high, you could be saying, and Either you're mad, storyteller, or Peter was. Nothing of the sort. Peter knew how high the needle was, and he believed he must never be greedy about how many threads he took from each napkin. He had unveiled. If he unraveled too many, someone might become very curious. It didn't have to be the chief warder. The laundress who washed the napkins might be the one to notice. Rather, a lot of each one was gone. She might mention it to a friend who would mention it to another friend until the story would spread and it wouldn't long really Beeson, Peter was worried about, you know. Beeson was, all things said, a fairly stupid fellow. Flagg was not. Flagg had murdered his father. Flagg kept his ear to the ground. It was a shame Peter never stopped to wonder about that vague smell of must upon the napkins or to ask the, if the person hired to remove the royal crest had been let go after removing a certain number, or if that person was still at work. But, of course, his mind was on other things. He could not help noticing that they were very old, and this was certainly a good thing. He was able to take a great many more threads from each than he ever would have guessed in even his most optimistic moments. How many more than 
than that he could have taken, he came to know only in time. Still, I can hear some of you saying, threads from napkins to make a rope long enough to reach the window on the needle's topmost cell in the courtyard, threads from napkins to make a rope strong enough to support 170 pounds? I still think you're joking. Those of you who think so are forgetting the dollhouse and the loom within, a loom so tiny that the threads of napkins were perfect for its tiny shuttle. Those of you who think so are forgetting that everything in the dollhouse was tiny but worked perfectly. The sharp things had been removed, and that included the loom's cutting blade, but otherwise it was intact. It was the dollhouse about which Flag had had vague misgivings so long ago, which was now Peter's only real hope of escape.